Welcome to the 38th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Ian Humphrey. We're here today with Ian Humphrey, who runs Under the Shroud, which is a very intense podcast drama that's pretty difficult to qualify simply. So uh, I'll just lift the words of Ian himself in the about page on the site. The continuing stories Under the Shroud is of the beset cab driver take a noir tone in a horror setting. I would say like slash fantasy, which you cite elsewhere. Corn only has two goals. Stay high and stay alive. God bless. And in that order, (laughs) life never does seem to work that way, though. He drives knights of an arcane order, believers in a very much alive and degenerate Jesus Christ, white supremacists with more control than you'd think, and characters that can never come out in the vanilla world. So I'll say that this episode's brand of fuckery is brought to you by uh, Mudblood Demon Junkies. That's how I qualify Corin. But yeah, so I'll just say that I've been burning through a few of these episodes. I've gotten like, I would say like two thirds of the way through and then I skipped to the withdrawal episode because uh, I know you were kind of, so to speak, itching for me to get there. And it's it's pretty crazy. It's It's wild. And the production is phenomenal. I'll just say that like right up front. It's it's amazing. It's just so imaginative. Like, I mean, you you almost use this Harry Potter esque division of types of species, or like Lord of the Rings ish, I guess you could say. But like, it's it's like meets Sin City, you know. But it's it's totally unique. It's its own thing. But yeah, that's that's enough of that's enough of my description. I, let, let's talk about how you know how you came up with this, like what what this is to you and how you came up with it. Well, first off, hello, I'm Ian. It's a pleasure to meet all of you folks. Yeah, the, it's there's a, a fair amount of uh, Lord of the Rings meets Lord of the Flies going on in the societal yeah, landscape yeah. of the thing. Much of the divisions that you'll find have, <laughs> have a lot of basis in our current political landscape, but also the way that, that our current political landscape has flashed on down the years yeah, I guess I'll say that's all I'll say about that for now. The inspiration for the world was more about, frankly, uh, bad acid trips from my youth. One in particular, right? Uh, there was a, there was a mushroom trip I went on that I thought had finished because I was at a solid six, uh, f- uh, somewhere between four and five hours, I guess, about four to five hours through, uh-huh. and I was on my way home, and I have the parent had was giving me a ride to the train station they did not know that i was tripping my nuts off and pretty much as soon as i uh-huh. pulled into the train station everything went much weirder and there were dragons hiding in shadows etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was this struggle to get home and seeing monsters in the alleyways but also knowing that those monsters were not you know didn't have any malicious intent towards me necessarily they just were were creatures of darkness and that there was a lot of a sense of Narnia that even if these horrible things were there that I was seeing that it was my responsibility to engage them because if you 
you know, refuse the call to adventure. What kind of jackass are you? So, and that was <laughs> yeah. the, the beginnings of where this world was born. That and I was raised in a hippie commune that was run primarily by clothing optional feminists off the grid. So life was already a bit of a fantasy journey, pretty much. From and what was, your, what was your option? What was your option? Clothes or no clothes? Uh, that depended. I tended towards clothes more so than the younger kids. The, yeah. the, see, I, I, I tended to wear things, but that also depended on the occasion. There, I didn't have any other kids who were really my age that I was very close friends with most of the time. And in all the pictures, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer were at least wearing overalls. So I figured that was a good uh, platform to start from. Okay. <laughs> and it had that sort of – It was this was in Baltimore County, and the, <laughs> the wilderness – as I thought it had the the Mark Twain motif that I had to lay into. So, yeah, lots of straw hats. This commune was in Baltimore County? Yeah, it was actually, I guess, like a three-minute drive from Interstate 83, which bisects not only all of Baltimore County, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, all of Baltimore County and Baltimore City. And it was yeah. the last exit before you hit the Mason-Dixon line was our exit. So, technically speaking, we were not far from civilization at all, but we were entrenched deep enough in this valley. Most of the buildings were built before the Declaration of Independence was signed. And again, society was, I don't want to say barbaric because nobody was eating anybody, but it was different enough from our very few trips to the gas station or Kmart that we definitely felt like we were off the grid. Very interesting. We need to come back to this because, you know, I was going to, I was going to, you know, when I said, Let's talk about your journey from Baltimore to Austin, where you live now. I did not know we were going to go back to the commune. Well, you know, it always starts there. That's the, that's such a, it's <laughs> such a, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but you just don't hear a lot about commune kids, much like sort of the, the realities of the Amish, where they have, I don't remember the names of any of these rituals, but I know that they have a thing where they're like, hey, go wild. And the bulk of them are allowed to, all of them are allowed to, like released for a year and then the bulk of them come back and that i think that that yeah, oftentimes, right thank you and i think that <laughs> happens with a lot of sort of weirdo commune kids is that they go out in the world and they come back home and i did not make that choice yeah or yeah. they you know don't necessarily enjoy the 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 limelight whereas i am an attention whore attention hog and all of the above and in, in great levels. So you're not, right, you're not right. Off a good so, uh, yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, two things that, I mean, the commune shit is, uh, is it, we, we actually saw a reader a couple weeks ago who read some poems about growing up in a commune, but I can also relate to the thinking the trip is done when in fact, uh, cause I had taken, I had taken mushrooms once at like one or two in the morning mm -hmm. with a friend and we had like an 8am flight from Seattle back home. <laughs> Back to D, you know, Baltimore or whatever. I don't know if it was BWI or Reagan or whatever, but um, what's called BWI yeah, for so old get, time's sake? Yeah, right, right, right. Why not for to keep it in the keep it in the Baltimore area? <laughs> so yeah, there must be something about mass transportation areas or like air, you know, some sort of like civilized modes of transportation where you just project your horrors because yeah, when I got to the airport, things were not done. <laughs> oh yeah, well, it, you know the the. 
police presence, which I'm very pleased about. It's a great idea. But when it's when they're looking at you and they're concerned and you're like, well, you know, maybe you should be that can amplify things pretty quickly. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, I think I, I blame TSA. <laughs> but yeah, so you saw all of this shit. But then years later, you come up with this show. Is that correct? Yeah, there were there were a series of sort of literary or influential stepping stones along the way to the idea of uh, using my least favorite term and the term that I live in, urban fantasy. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I was, I refrained from using that that phrase. It felt a little too generic. It's weird because it really, it really is very appropriate in general to my work because urban fantasy frequently is speaking to noir, and the shroud is nothing else if not noir. Right. But it also, it can fall into these very easy tropes. The way I think of it is starting with Jim Butcher, who was one of the guys who exploded the genre in an adult capacity with his Dresden Files novels. He's amazing. I can't say enough great things about him. But he t- leaned really hard on the Raymond Chandler aesthetic. This idea, the, the way that yeah. it's, it's Marlowe, right, for, for Chandler. Everybody, uh-huh. a lot of people tended to lean really hard on the Philip Marlowe aesthetic, which Butcher himself chose initially as a joke. And that is a little limiting to what noir can be. We oftentimes think of noir as the detective story, but that's actually really doesn't capture a whole lot of the noir library that's out there. And that's why I wanted, yeah, when I was yeah. creating this show, I wanted to stick with my protagonist, Corn Black, the hapless half-demon of Baltimore, the devil's runt, as they call him, mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to be solving mysteries or cases, but he was going to be directly involved with them. How? He's a cab driver, yeah. and a lot of the early thinking for the show was, okay, the formula is Corin needs money to get high. He's struggling with his addiction. We'll put him in the cab. Mm -hmm. He's never having a good day. That's just the nature of the beast when you're struggling with addiction and frequently the nature of the beast when you're struggling with your job. Yeah, yeah. And far from solving shit, he's he's often more of a pawn or like something that's being... That it, like, lacks agency. Yeah. Because he's getting, like, fucked around by his boss and random, like, nationalist editorials white nationalist editorials that are secretly running guns and this oh, and that yeah. <laughs> all sorts of fun shit well and and, and again yeah. so he's so the the setup again is he's having this he's just having a day which is bad because it's that's life and then you put something relatively monstrous in the car with him and you make it worse and that's i mean that that is the basic formula for the show i vary from that a fair amount but that Right at its core, I mean, it fits into that old that old saying about like, what is a story? You have a character, you put him in a tree, you throw rocks in him, you get rocks at him, and then you get him out of the tree. It's really funny. I just brought that up on a previous podcast. Oh, really? Nabokov said that. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's yeah. it's one of those great <laughs> truisms. Yeah. And what yeah. I liked about using Corin for this, I was thinking of it. <laughs> right. What I liked about yeah. using Corin for this was that the process of getting him out of the tree would be basic survival, but then he also, you know, both needs to be a sympathetic character for the audience to care, and also, I want to like him, and he has some semi-autobiographical notes, so I want to like me, and what I realized was that for him, it was going to be about, by the end of the episode, he has found some small way to care 
and yeah, as yeah. often as possible to affect some small level of positive change. There's a great yeah, that reminds me a lot of have you have you ever seen The Wire? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, because you're from Baltimore. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret right now that's not a secret anymore because it's going out to everyone who's going to listen. But exciting. I just started watching that for the first time. Oh, you're in for a treat. Yeah, it's it's incredible. But the that kind of reminds me of Bubbles, right? Like, because Bubbles is like this junkie, but like every time he, he like he does still have like that modicum of like conscience left enough to at least like try and save his friend or whatever. Yeah, Bubbles was a huge influence on the on the character. I, I think it's yeah, safe to yeah. say, I mean, like, as we all, as all of us who are writers know, you know, you never get influence from just one place. Every character, every plot, every story is an amalgamation of things. Platitudes aside, whatever of corn is not me is probably a little bit of Bubbles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you make the decision to, like, make him a junkie? Like, I mean, because, like, you know... Like, dope is, like, a pretty... I mean, it's a prevalent drug in Baltimore. Baltimore's, like, arguably the heroin capital of the world, like, in a lot of ways. Right. Maybe not, like, in totality, but, like, maybe per capita or something like that. You know what I mean? Is it, is it mainly that? Or, like, what was what was the decision that... Like, yeah, like, why? Why, why dope? Why not coke? Why not this? Why not, like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, any number of things, you know? I thought a lot about it because, and I've I've made the conscious decision to be fairly forthright in this show about this. Uppers is where my experience lies, and I've I've had some trouble with that in my past, and I didn't want to. I did not want to use that for this character. I didn't like the Uh idea of him having this constant tripping over himself aggression and there's a a couple levels to that one was just purely for audio having somebody who's all sped up is funny for a little while and then it's not so funny anymore it becomes yeah obnoxious to, to the ear there was also what i liked about using downers for corin was that it has where uppers have a sense of i'm trying to get out of the hole i'm in by doing all these crazy things, downers have seemed to me in my limited experience with downers, but my great experience with watching others on them, not great, positive, extensive. There's a little more of being stuck in one place and more of an, uh, an awareness of that and sort of lounging into it. I also have played with it a fair amount within the magic of the universe. Technically speaking, what Corrin is on, the drug he's on is called Dash, which is a sly reference to Dashiell Hammett, because, yeah, noir. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, interesting. Right? <laughs> interesting. There you go. I love it. Sneaking in the, yeah. the noir parentage there. Uh-huh. Technically, Dash is a, uh, a speedball with magic in it. It is a little bit of a yeah. lot of dope, a little bit of coke, and a fair amount of this magical water of life aqua vitae liquid that is in the mix. Yeah, some mana. <laughs> right. Yeah, mana. Exactly. And he's <laughs> yeah. he nods out occasionally. He's always a little you know tired, but it keeps him alert enough that he can engage in the story and in the adventure. Plus, if I'm being yeah, real, yeah. that's always just a fun combination. Yeah, I mean, little yeah. up, if, little if, down. If only, keeps you if going. only, if if only our speedballs had magic in them, then we'd all we'd all still be out there, or we'd be far <laughs> worse cooked off. So that was that. What that decision was about. I also 
I'd recently, when I came up with the character, it had the revelation that a lot of my stories lacked a sense of hope. Part of that was really just, I'm generally speaking a pretty positive guy. I think that life is largely going to go well. And I reined Uh back in on that as as a writer. I don't want to... I don't want to come off as too sunshiny, and that has gotten me into the habit of making everything pretty uh, dark and dismal. And I liked the idea that he has this consistent battle to fight, but he does see a light at the end of the tunnel, and that had something to do with his his my addiction choices for him. Yeah, yeah, and which is like another like kind of almost fantastical element because you know the you know giving this person. I don't know that there's there's the magic in the world because someone who's speedballing is inevitably going to get to a place where like that hope is quickly sort like starting to shut off. Yeah. But the way that your episodes work, I really like because it's like not it doesn't resemble law and order in any sense, but every episode is a new problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so so like it's like you do. You do a good job of like, you know, creating your own logic in the story where it's like, okay, he's like, you know, getting off every single episode and he's in this, you know, hole, but it's kind of like plateaued in a way, you know, or like he's in that valley, like, or it's just like, it's kind of just fucked, but he's still able to kind of navigate. How do I get out of this particular situation I'm in and have a conscience slash like empathy for certain people that I'm engaged with on that note do you have do you have like a favorite episode i don't know it's uh, it kind of kind of hard to ask someone who's creating no not film, at all but... i i have i have two favorite episodes one was relatively early on in the show the it's the episode titled true believers which yeah i'll just talk about that for a second it's true believers was a concept that i came up with relatively early in the creation of this world the idea that a jesus h christ is regularly dying and resurrecting and that he's in a bad mm-hmm. place psychologically and has been for some time. I liked the idea that <laughs> if you were like every now and then you end up in one of these conversations where somebody's like, oh, well, what if Morrison or Hendrix or Joplin hadn't died? Imagine the work they could be making today. And then somebody will inevitably say, uh-huh. yeah, but what if they just like became this horrible tragedy story because those guys didn't die because things were going well and, you know, they sort of burned out. I'm not saying I don't really speak much in the story to Jesus as he existed in the book. What I do speak to is the idea that if you were stuck for 2000 years trying to be as optimistic about humanity as he is in the in the source material, you'd probably get tired, too. So anyway, so he's going through uh, Jesus is going through a rough patch and there is a church that is dedicated to him. The true believers And their entire philosophy cooks down to, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, he's a bit of a mess right now, but it's okay. He's going to get better. Mm -hmm. Which obviously, from what we've been talking about with Cord, is that's my central philosophy of protagonists at this point. Yeah. So anyway, so I like the idea of putting Corn in the car with one of these true believers. She's a goofy character. She's a fun character. I'm not going to say too terribly much about it because I want you all to listen and and enjoy the shroud with me. 
But yeah, I will say yeah, no that <laughs> I, I, I look forward to all of you joining us. But yeah, yeah. One on that note, I do wanna I do wanna say that one of my favorite parts of the show is the Patreon in like injections where it's like it's part it's part of the world you know it's like Corin needs it not Ian Corin needs the Patreon contributions like this, you know it's really interesting with that because that Beautiful. actually has not gone over as well as I would have hoped but I stand by the fact that it was the coolest idea to start the show I was having one of those yeah. you know author evenings where I'm trying to sleep but the ideas are ticking around and I can't quite roll over and I can't shut the the idea machine up and then that idea came to me like oh shit what if I could use the character's drug addiction to allow him to directly beg the audience for money for money yeah that's beautiful and uh, in a yeah couple and, of- and you said it, it's it's not it's not going over well like what exactly like what kind of is there like blowback or like, it's like not, what is it exactly? there's not blowback and a lot of people really love it it's one of the more uh, I, I, I don't want to disparage anybody. We all have hard lives and it's hard to come up with money. And frankly, the internet can be difficult yeah. to understand. Understanding how Patreon works is tough. So I'm not complaining here. Okay. But I have had people who are not Patreon subscribers come up to me and say, like out of the clear blue sky at my coffee shop, somebody's heard about the show from a friend and they see me and they come uh-huh. up and the first thing they'll say is, this happened like six or seven times, hey, I love your show and I love that the character is begging for money for Patreon subscriptions right in the material. That's great. And I'll go, cool, have you signed up? And they'll go, eh, and then the conversation's over. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like everyone everyone wants to go over and, uh, you know, help out the Syrians, but, like, is anyone actually going to do it? (laughs) Right, right. I, I, I totally get it. It's like, it's like asking people to go above and beyond but like I, I do love the metaphor for like actually you know the person on the subway with their hat out who ne- just needs money for a fucking 40 exactly a 40 ounce or like their their next bag of dope or whatever and it's like who's gonna ante up so it sounds like it is going over very well it it's is. just a as matter a, of like as a story pe- element people, it's aren't, people don't want to feed the addiction it is it's amazing. I love it. Particularly because there was a moment so, yes. that came about. There was a realization that I had with the character over time, as happens when you're living in the brain of a person who doesn't exist. Over time, what I started to realize is that uh, his motivation for making the show started to change. Initially, mm-hmm. in the pilot, he sets out to just, you know, oh, it's a quick way to make a buck that he thinks might work. And then, uh, I won't give away the, the plot line of the pilot, but something tragic and kind of disastrous and sad happens and he decides well it's also got to be about telling the stories of people under the shroud but also speak speaking up for the little guy and making sure that the little guy's tragic story is heard yeah and then this wonderful thing happened over time and i really i am tearing up i right now just thinking about it i started to connect with some of the fans of the show through discord channels and started to have a real relationship with some of these people and this weird thing where like you've never seen a human be- this human being before but and you don't even know their real name because you know them by their like video game handle and then you start to really yeah. really care about these people in a in a profound way and it was when I was writing writing withdrawal episode 11 which I won't say mm-hmm. much about because it is a pretty significant plot device gets him into this into that predicament but you can guess that yeah. he's going through some shit if it's called withdrawal. And I realized as I was writing it that his motivation was no longer really – I mean he kept he, – he's going to keep begging for the money and he's going to keep speaking up for the little guy. 
but that the real reason for it was that he had this relationship with the audience. And I sort of maintain, at least at the moment, that they're, that's a one-sided conversation, that he's telling his stories to these people, but he can see the metrics that the audience, that there is an audience out there and they are listening and he misses them. He's had a distance from them and that distance has an effect. And that frankly surprised me. It has just, it, it was just a very important uh, realization. And it, I like that it built along with his begging for money. This, yeah, yeah. This new note. Is that your second, is, is that your other favorite episode, the withdrawal one? Or what? It is. It is. And it's the one yeah, that yeah. the audience get, seems to get most excited for. A lot of times, again, on these Discord channels or on Twitter or wherever, where I'm trying to drum up, put it in front of folks, I'll mention it to somebody. And they will say, oh, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. And, you know, maybe they listen, maybe they don't. Maybe they'll let me know if they start listening. But if they get to withdrawal and we have had any level of personal conversation, that's the point at which somebody reaches out and says, hey, holy uh, shit, this is pretty cool, which obviously yeah, is a great feeling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, that's like, it, the, that's like the reason we do it. That is, well, yeah, that's that's the thing. And And again, particularly because there's this, that's the first time that he turns to the audience and goes like, hey, you know, I don't know if you guys are ever going to hear this recording. Shit's gotten pretty bad, but I miss you guys. And then to have that be the moment that the audience chooses to turn around and say, hey, thank you for making this um, is, a, is a really nice nod to the character himself. Uh-huh. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more like, OK, so before we move into your journey to, to Austin. Let's talk a little bit more about how, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to start at the commune? I mean, like, you know, it's funny because we talked the first time it was like, we were talking more about from Baltimore and then where'd you go? Did you go to Phoenix or Albuquerque? I no. forget which one of those Southwestern. <laughs> um, let's start with the journey out what? of Baltimore. I, I, uh, not to, obviously this is a very different audience. Hello audience. You're wonderful and you're different. But uh, I recently yeah. did an interview that talked a lot about the commune days and I've got other stories to tell. Gosh, golly. Yeah. So yeah. I'd like to talk. Tell them, uh, well, why don't, right now, why don't you tell them where, where they can listen to that before we, you know, just oh, to get, yeah, sure. get up to speed on that. Yeah. Um, There's a wonderful show called Ignorance Was Bliss. I'm uh, sorry. Hosted by Kate. And I'm now realizing I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I believe it's Wallinger, who is... One of my new heroes, she is, we recently coined the name, she's our podcast fairy godmother, but she does this wonderful okay. show about, it's just your standard interview show, except that she has this incredible insight because she was a uh, psychologist in a federal prison for a very long time, and that's going to give you some insight that's a little different than the average human experience. And we had a wonderful conversation about the commune days and the psychological effects of that. It was a trip, and I highly recommend going and listening to that episode. I don't remember which number it is, but I know that there's the concept of grace comes up in the title because because grace is very important to me. Okay, great. Yeah, now we, we just created a uh, sort of uh, sibling episode that we can lead up to this one for. But uh, okay, yeah, so let's let's start in Baltimore. You're... you're you're out of the commune. <laughs> I'm out of the commune. The commune's long gone. I've already traveled. Okay. I'm on the tail end of my outlaw days where I'm no longer involved in criminal enterprise. And yes, I am leaving uh -huh. that vague. You are going to have to find out more by following what I do. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, so outlaw days are really sort of trailing off. I had had a bar, uh, a job as a bar back and bartender for a long time. Um, I am 
going to leave these details a little vague as well, but was no longer working there, largely having to do with going really deep into the bottle. The help. Of- Damn, man, we uh, we should have we should have done this episode in like 10 years. So we could have gotten like statute of limitations. You know what I mean? Most of the statute <laughs> of limitations for my crimes are up. I tend to keep track of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. There we there we go. I love it. I love it. Doing your research. I mean, well, there was a there was a series of riot stories and more commercial drug business stories that I like to tell. And there were a couple of police officers who I was friendly with. And I never thought that they were going to rat me out. But just in case, I always made sure I knew which stories I could tell when. I see. I see. So I, I love the illusions here. It's all it's almost better than hearing the hearing the whole thing. You know what I mean? One one of these days I'm going <laughs> to tell the, the riot stories because those are just well, they're just a laugh riot. Yeah, we're going to we're going to have to have, have you back on then, you know, <laughs> get, to, get to the meat of this matter. I'll have to write something <laughs> worthy of the riot stories so that we could talk about the reference point, which. Yeah. I'm always hesitant about memoir. Anyway, so yeah, so I just lost my job. I'd been unemployed for a fair amount of time. I don't, honest to God, don't remember how I was putting together the money to pay rent. I wasn't partying as much. I had a sense that my upper days were going to have to end. And then there was one night in particular that I wanted to talk, that I, I've sort of been saving this story for this show after our pre-interview interview. There was a night where me and my old crew, and we used to call ourselves the Degenerates, we were up all night on things that make that easier. We were incredibly yeah. wasted. I was the soberest driver, and there were four of us total in the car. And I was mm-hmm. under the impression that we were giving the fourth kid, the one I knew the least, a ride home. Bear in mind, we were a very, very tight-knit crew in the way that Mm -hmm. people who do things, who who make mistakes all the time and have to have somebody who will forgive them in the morning and watch their back, that kind of community and proximity and and (laughs) relatively diseased adoration was between all of us. Anyway... I'm not going to say any of the names of the guys, but I will refer to the the skinny one and the redhead one. And okay. we then then there was the the little guy. So I thought we I was just giving the little guy a ride home, and then we were going to be f- done for the evening. And as we were driving around, I realized that like they had far too little of a sense of where little guy lived, and it was a little odd. And then we were traveling deeper and deeper into the Baltimore City hood, which I'm sure you can imagine is a place that four guys who are tanked in a my it was my friend's uh, the redhead guy's car driving around in a very, very nice car. It was just a bad call. And then I realized that what we were doing was looking for heroin. And this was the one line that I or one of the lines that I was wouldn't cross myself. And I got very upset and insisted when did you had how did you realize that the, that we were not going to skinny kids house but we were going to find heroin when they started leaning out the window and addressing hookers saying hey you got any heroin yeah okay <laughs> yeah that's okay so not not even not even saying yo where the skag at or, no you got you got that china we're just like where's the heroin <laughs> and like yes it was pretty much exactly that like awkward and silly it's a it's a sad story and a very intense story but yeah no there was definitely this sense of like jesus christ like have you guys even done this before like what do we come on be, be professional yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And uh, anyway, yeah. so they they just started <laughs> leaning out the window and asking. I was like, this is fucking. I mean, first off, I don't want to be around this substance. Second off, this is dumb as shit. Uh-huh. And I started to uh-huh. be pretty vocal about that. I was just like, you guys are fucking idiots. We're driving back yeah, to that's my pretty place. Much, it's, pretty, get, it's, it's pretty much how you get robbed. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Like, it's a great way to get robbed. You get the <laughs> shit kicked out of you and get a gun shoved in your face. Oh, yeah. And, like, God knows yeah. what else. And don't get me wrong. These guys have plenty of stories where I'm just as much of an idiot. Yeah. Right, right, right. The substantial line was just like, nope, no dope for Humphrey. Uh-huh. And I, anyway, so I was very upset. And Sage. I insisted that we drive back to my place. They could do whatever the fuck they wanted after that. But I was getting out of the car. And yeah. they did not want to do that because that would have wasted. I mean, we didn't uh, really seriously. It would have taken us a solid 45 minutes just to find our way out of the hood at that point. Again, I was drunk and mm-hmm. driving. So it was, again, I'm not like, I had very little high horse to stand on. Yeah, right, right. But at about that point, the guy, I was stopped at a stop sign, sort of trying to figure out where to go to get home. The guys popped out of the car, grabbed me, and manhandled me into the trunk of the car. I didn't put up too terribly much of a fight. I saw it was happening and was more. Wait, con- wait, wait. You're talking about your boys did that to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were Holy sick of shit. me being. Wait, so are they mean? Are they like. F- are they like fiends at this point? Like, are they like hooked or like? I don't like think... what possessed them to do that. It's kind of tough for me to speculate on on how far down the rabbit hole they'd gone. Yeah, but I will say because that's that intense. That's real intense. The sense I got was that they were regular users. It's worth noting that we were again we were on the vague term uppers and tanked, and when I get vicious, I can get pretty mean, and I was really laying into him about how dumb the behavior was. So that's just, that's, that might've been part of why. And as will become important later in the story, again, I didn't really fight terribly hard and it wasn't like the trunk, like a sedan. It was the back of an SUV, but they Uh did muscle me into the back. Okay. Anyway. Gotcha. The other thing that was interesting about (laughs) it was I was at a stop sign, but we were by no means in park. So I think that that, as I recall, that was a, larger part of my concern was that okay i'll get in the back but somebody needs to make sure the car doesn't drive itself away yeah and 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 to make sure that the cops don't think like someone's getting kidnapped right now and then we're all fucked (laughs) i think it's safe to say that in that neighborhood the cops weren't there and if they were their advice would have been you guys just need to go you just need to go um probably yeah that's where uh that's where white skin might have played a factor who knows i that we could go into that topic for hours. Yeah, yeah. Because that definitely has had played a factor in that specific cruise um, adventures. Anyway, yeah, I got yeah. into the back, and they continued on their merry hunt, and I found a bottle of Jameson and decided to get as mean as I possibly could, and really uh-huh. was digging into them and their intellect. They were trying to tell me to <laughs> shut up, which was not working. And at, finally, they started, there were some threats, you know, like, if you don't shut up, we're going to kick the shit out of you, blah, 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 blah. And finally, we pulled over into what we at first thought was an alleyway, but turned out just to be a really shitty uh, dead-end street. And they were, all right, it was fight time. It was time to kick the shit out of Ian for being too mean about all this. And mm-hmm. I got out of the car. Again, there's three of them. The little kid whose home we were, we had been ostensibly looking for, right? he pretty quickly realized that this was not something he could be a part of. The redheaded fella, I'd already kicked the shit out of for funsies a couple times, uh-huh. one particular instance. So he was a little on the fence about it. And the taller, skinny fella... 
he really wanted to kick my ass. So what I ended up doing, I clocked the redhead guy in the face, and then I took my skinny fella down, and I read it out, which is when you do not know what has happened for a short period of time because the blood rush of violence. Uh, which I, ooh, ooh. Ooh, I'm going to I'm going to steal the shit out of that for something. Oh, please do. Is that I mean, common parlance? I believe so. I mean, I've been uh, I don't oh, remember shit. where I first heard it, but I've been experiencing it since I was a very very small kid. Damn, the, the you're, you're you're variegating my uh my alcohol vocabulary here cuz I got the blackout, the brownout, you know, the brownout where you're in and out sort of right. red out. I love that. Well, red out from my understanding doesn't necessarily have anything to do with substances. It doesn't, yeah. Actually, but, I know but, for you fact know, it doesn't have to have anything to do with substances at all. I've yeah, it doesn't hands. hurt that you're you know wasted and coked up a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, if that yeah. was the upper, who, who knows? Who's to say? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Pl- plausible deniability, gotcha. right? <laughs> but anyway, it was prescribed. It was very prescribed uh, ADD medication. I it think, was something. Actually. It was it was energetic and it was working. Which remind which reminds me that's one of my f- that actually might be my favorite line in your show is when Corin's like pass out or something and one of the girls in that episode where, where do they like they're like were cats or something i forget what their name oh the like were they're the, the racist the were rats the were rats the were rats right they come back and wake him up and he's like oh it's a, it, this is a prescription yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's like the first the first words out of his mouth yeah. i love that <laughs> i love it anyway so okay so yeah there are you guys you guys are outside you're redded out yeah, so I read out and next. I well when I come to I'm I'm smashing my buddy's face into the pavement and oh, oh my god. Yeah, and I all I see coming back is the back of his head and the back of his head and his hair in my hand and blood all over the pavement. And oh god. I broke down sobbing immediately. I probably would have in any case, but particularly because this was one of my best friends. Yeah. And this yeah. was sort of like in this story, they're a little more the bad guys, but I was not a good guy at that time yeah, in my life. Right. I was making a lot of poor choices. I mean, the fact that I was in that car at all was not because I was, you know, things were going well. And right, right. That was where the decision started to become inevitable, where my unemployment and my will, will he, won't he about addiction and the nightly carousing. It, it stopped being a possibility and became a necessity for me to get out. Not long afterwards, I got a phone call from a friend from years and years and years before who lived in Flagstaff who suggested I come out and visit. And we had used to fool around in college, but it, Flagstaff, that's it. Yeah. I knew I knew it was over there. Yeah, down in yeah. The, the dark and dirty southwest. But yeah. anyway, so she invited me out, offered to pay for my flight to go by flight out if I played for the flight back. And I was like, oh, I don't really have any money. And we worked out something. And this was on Easter five years ago. And which obviously has its own sort of uh, mythology of rebirth. And I thought that was rather fitting and kind of a sign because the, right. the call really came out of the clear blue sky. And within five days, I'd given away or thrown away or stored all my earthly belongings, except for a couple things in a little bag, and was on a plane to Flagstaff to try to figure my life out. Things did not go well in Flagstaff either to start. I did very quickly ended up without a place to stay. The The gal who'd brought me out there had recently left a, an engagement, and it became clear that I was sort of the, had been sort of flown in to be the new 
boyfriend fiance the rebound yeah and within the first 12 hours we had all gotten again super shit canned and she had decided that i was no longer welcome in her house and so pretty much right out right out the gate my little adventure to rediscover myself was fucked i was homeless almost immediately and slept on the couch of one of her friends for a little bit and then didn't really sleep much of anywhere for a while. And I remember there was a phone call I had with my mom. I was talking to my mom every day. She was fully aware of what was going on and not in some sort of irresponsible way. Like I was very clear. This was my call to make. I needed to get my, turn my life around. But right. there was a point where she was telling me that I could come home because this wasn't really working. And what I just, I ended up breaking down sobbing and saying was, no, I can't. Because if I go home, it's just a matter of time, probably days if not just hours before I get back and I'll be in the exact same situation I was in before and I was going to need to figure out how to be a better person which is tricky because I dare say that a lot of people struggle with the idea that you can be a better person at that point both people who have how old are you at this point at at this moment like you know Uh, right now I'm 32 this is this was the spring I was just about to turn 27 I ended up getting a. I ended up finding a small, like a hostel that I could work at. Just you know, a couple hours in the morning for a bunk bed to stay in, and I was there for a couple weeks. And then I got a job working on the south rim of the Grand Canyon for nine, ten months. That was where the worst of sort of not. I don't know if I would call it withdrawal, uh, because I never, I never had withdrawal from the uppers. I did definitely struggle to remember who I was and how yeah, to have, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely an imbalance of some sort that yeah. like, you know, you're adjusting there's not like that stuff doesn't give you a, as, as much of an acute withdrawal, but it does require, I mean, it, it fucks with your serotonin and dopamine a lot, you know, and especially with alcohol. Yeah. I was not so good at happy. Yeah. Right. There's the, there's the, the medical term is like anhedonia. It's like, I just feel like, <laughs> yeah you know it should be noted that i also did not stop drinking at that point um, yeah at that point i was still hitting the bottle pretty frequently and pretty hard yeah and was trying to teach myself as anybody with the upper experience could tell you i was trying to teach myself how to not drink so much that i just needed a snort to reboot that lesson it turns out can't you can't really unspin that knob or unring that bell rather but I was clean off the things, and that was that was a big step. So yeah, so I did that for a while. Picked up a DUI, destroyed a car, and le- decided to leave the Grand Canyon. And then I lived in this tiny town in Colorado uh, for a couple of years. I should back up a little bit. Um, there was this choice that got made right about the time that I left Baltimore, where I decided that three years was the number because that would be when I was turning 30. And I don't know if there's any validity to this whatsoever, particularly because morality is a difficult compass to watch. But I decided that part of the deal was, I guess it was about the time I moved to the Grand Canyon, the figures became clear. I decided that for three years at least, I was going to live off the grid to a certain extent. I wasn't going to be in any major cities. I wasn't going to be around drugs, first of all, or at least hardcore drugs. Mm-hmm. And I was going to 
it was the self-imposed exile for my sins. I don't, did not, do not believe that the uh, prison complex, whatever, works. And I certainly was not going there voluntarily. Right. But I had done a lot of bad shit, and I wanted to do some sort of sentence or time for that atonement, um, which is weird because I wanted, I, I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a bad time all of those three years. A lot of the stuff that I went through was really positive and really great. Yeah. And uh, I met a lot of wonderful people. Well, go, f- go figure. A lot of beautiful things. You start doing stuff that makes you feel better about yourself and go figure you feel better. <laughs> well, I started trying. Yeah. I still, I was struggling to get the writing on board. Every spring that I lived in Colorado, I would get very gung-ho about the writing, and then by midsummer, I would fall off again. Mm-hmm. But I was, I don't know, I was trying to figure out how to be a better person, I guess. And I, yeah. I was not wholly successful. I don't think I was a, ho- a wholly a failure, though. And then, <clears throat> about, after I'd been in Colorado for about two years, it, this was in a tiny town, population 400, 450 in the winter, and I just got kind of done with being there and i'd always wondered about austin i'd heard a lot of fuss about it um uh, for you know the ironically for the party scene but also the music and the art scene in general and then one day i was like all right let's go let's check it out let's see what's happening and i got here strangely for no particular reason that i can tell i guess it might have been the distance like i wasn't living i was so used to living walking distance from friends and bars and having so much to do there was just there i just started writing again i remember there was one morning in particular where i was driving um deep in the count the suburbs surrounding austin and they have turnarounds there which is just like an exit on the highway where you it, it is just a bridge, pretty much. You get off so that you can turn around and go the other way on the highway. Okay. And I saw one of these signs, turn around, and thought, huh, I'll bet you that's a great fucking place for an adventure. Turn around, Texas. And then I got home about 20 minutes later and started writing the uh, Christ Errant Trilogy, which was this series of stories about Jesus, the jaded, drunken private detective who's like totally lost faith in humanity but he's trying to figure out how to how to be a good person again mm-hmm. my rec- my recurring theme and that was where it all sort of kicked back into gear that was two and a half years ago and you know I, I I often talk with my closer friends here in Austin about it that I don't party anymore but I have I'm definitely hyper aware that I have supplanted addictions that where I used to go out and drink pretty much every night now, I get up in the morning and I am writing. I am on it. That's all I want to do. I don't really socialize much. I don't, you know, have a game crew. All I all I want to do is write. And that that is much better than ending up in a back alley beating the shit out of one of my dear friends because we shouldn't be in the hood trying to score dope. But it's also something that, like, the, eventually I'm going to have to pay the piper on this one. Eventually there's going to come a day where the fact that I can't, I have trouble sitting and having a conversation or sitting at dinner with folks because I'm just thinking about how much time I'm wasting when I could be out spinning words, eventually that's going to be a problem. And I'm uh, humbly aware of that, that this is not – I'm by no means at the end of this journey of redemption. I'm just at a far better fucking point than I ever have been. Right. Are you – 
aware of what a next step might be or are you okay with that uncertainty or does it scare the shit out of you or all of the above? <laughs> certainly, I, certainly it scares the shit out of me. And right now, yeah, I'm pretty good with it. You know, I've got this, I got this podcast man that I'm working on, you know, cause podcasts are cool and it's an audio drama. It's got a half demon. Woo. So my focus being on getting that show out and the accompanying projects, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment right now, driving so much attention into that is really important to me and is working for me. There's a great line in Bull Durham about having to respect the streak. Like you can't, can't fuck with the streak. You got to respect the streak. Love that movie. Love Bull Durham. Great Great movie. Great fucking movie. Great fucking movie. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, I can really relate because I remember back when I was like maybe 24, 25, whatever me and my ex-girlfriend were at, uh, at some lunch with a bunch of, you know, people I didn't care about. And I was just like, I was kind of just moody the whole time, I guess. And it was noticeable. And so she mentioned it when we got back and I was like, yeah, well I'm like 25 and I could be working on my novel right now. Instead I'm like at this lunch with shit munchers. And it's like looking back, I'm like, yeah, that's not, that wasn't a healthy thing to be thinking. (laughs) Like I can't be writing 24 seven, you know, but (laughs) I can totally, I can totally relate, but like, and at the same time, you're totally right. It's better than, it's better than, uh, than engaging in intense violence against people you call friends. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty, it's tough. It's just, it's, it's a, it's an evolution. That's for sure. It's a, it is an evolution. So, and there's also, I mean, it is a tricky thing because, you know, because one, one of the other, one of the great truisms of writing is that, you know, you're, I'm very glad that I do not have this kind of friends and family, but frequently people talk about like, people telling them to give up the dream and stop spending so much time and so much energy on the craft and blah, 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 blah. And you do have to be driven in your own and make your own schedule. Um, my girlfriend frequently says, like, I'll say, well, I'm shit. I'm behind. I didn't get this stuff done today that I want to get done. And she'll look at me and go, yeah, but you made those deadlines. Like those weren't real. You insisted that they exist. Right. And she's right. But somebody's got to make those deadlines or else what the fuck are we doing? Right. You know, like there's right. no, there's no goddamn point if we're not going to be, take this shit seriously. So it's, it is a, it is a lot of balancing. And I, I wonder sometimes if I'd gone into a different pursuit or if, you know, I had a different passion or what have you, that it, it would be easier to get my life and my morality back together. If it was just like, okay, cool. I showed up to work today. I, you know, counted numbers and sat in meetings and I did the right thing and I feel proud of myself and I'm good. Would, would I be able to socialize and relax with uh, my fellow man more easily now? Or would it be just another version of the same problem? I don't know. I have no idea. I do know that I'm happier than I've ever been in my entire life from point from the fucking commune. I am happier now than at any other juncture because even if the 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 craft of wordsmith and storytelling and all that shit even if it never goes anywhere it still gives me a reason to wake up up in the morning and and make that morning matter yeah so i'm not complaining but yeah eh, one day i'm gonna need to figure it out 
there was an interesting conversation I had recently with uh, another podcaster. I won't drop their name, but you know, they're a big deal. Mm-hmm. And she was talking to me about like, what are the steps that you're going through now to try to make your podcast more noticeable or to get what you need to out of the podcasting medium. And we had a great conversation. And then at some point right near the end, she said, okay, so these are the problems that you're having. And these are the steps they're taking. What if it doesn't work? And I, didn't have an answer and didn't feel bad about it. Yeah, because the answer I'll, I'll was just be, like I'll, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. That that was this. That was the same question that was rolling around in my head. It's like you know, what what else is there? But so yeah, so it doesn't matter. Is your answer? I mean, at this point, I just want. I got so many I got cool stories I want to tell. You know. Yeah. And and the more that I can figure out how to tell stories that are that are difficult and the 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 characters are suffering and it it and it other people can empathize with that suffering and i can have these direct conversations with them um over the internet and and when i'm fortunate enough in person and they feel the need to be better as long as that's happening i'm fucking winning like i'm i'm pulling it off and even frankly if nobody was listening i still get to tell these stories and 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 I'm just gonna keep doing it until you know, until they nail me shut in the box. I'm fucking. I, I just, I just want to tell these. I just want to let these people live. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but in my head, that's the right answer. It's like you do it because you want to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, um, dude, uh, we're so we're we're hitting like an hour, which is like usually usually where we start to wind it down. But um, I think. Definitely in the future, we got to have you back on as you uh, continue to work on your show. And I mean, there's I think there's just a shit ton we can talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, for for example, the next time I come on, I'm currently working. This this can kind of work as like a uh, uh, foreshadowing for the next show sort of thing, but also wrapping it up. One of the things that I'm working on a lot is that this the the, uni- the Shroud universe that I've built for this podcast and for a couple of unpublished novels that I've got hanging around, it's expansive. And what I'm doing right now are developing a series of spinoffs that are going to expand upon the universe. Um, they'll have a lot of the same cast of actors on the shows. They'll have uh, quite a few of the same characters, certainly a lot of the same terminology, and that's what I'm working on right now is trying to develop these for release down the line. So when I'm getting closer to releasing one of those, I will let you know, sir, and we should talk about some of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. On the record. <laughs> on the record. Okay, yeah. I'll uh, I'll close it out and then... Um... Yeah, uh, just one more time for the cheap seats. The show is Under the Shroud. They are the adventures of a humble half-demon, and we welcome you to join us. Yeah, we'll haunt your thoughts and dreams. And please help Corin... Uh hit him up on Patreon cuz you know or, or else he's going to he's going to start he's going to start getting the itchies and the sweats, you know. No one wants that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website animalriotpress.com. This has been the 38th episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Ian Humphrey. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and this episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals.
sir, it's the burn. Bombing on yelling, getting gully as the fern. I don't know much about Lee.